as we get ready to hear the word of God, let us pray that the Lord would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand what he has for us and to walk in his ways. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we marvel and are amazed that you are a speaking God and that you accomplish things through speech. You created the world through speech and we are honored and humbled that you speak to us this morning. We pray that your word would be effectual, that it would accomplish everything that you have set out for it to accomplish. We pray that through your word that you would sanctify us and conform us ever more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand and hands and feet that are ready and eager and willing to do your bidding as part of the new creation in Christ. It's in his name, washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt in your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. And beloved, turn with me, if you will, uh, to the scripture reading. I'd like to read a familiar passage this morning. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It's, uh, text is printed for you in the bulletin as well. Luke 10, 25 through 37. This is the word of God. Please Pay attention to it as such. It says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So also a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Well, before we dive into this too much, I just wanted to say up front that I'm indebted to Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. He's the president of the seminary and was one of my uh, teachers in seminary. And I heard him preach on this text. And I'm not going to be quoting him throughout, but it's one of those texts or sermons that if you've ever heard one where you recognize, I'll never hear or understand this passage again after hearing how somebody explained it or expounded before. So I, I must say that his uh, view of this and his understanding and his teaching on this shaped mine strongly. And so I want to give him all credit for that. I'm thankful for his faithfulness. 
But this story is a well-known story, isn't it? And so sometimes when we're so familiar with something, it gets easy to overlook the point, or it might be easy to miss the point. If you read this parable and you thought, should we love and show mercy to our neighbors, you would think, well, of course, yes. Is there an easier question? If I asked our kids in Sunday school class, does Jesus want us to love and serve our neighbor? They would say, yes. Thank you for giving us such an easy question. Of course he does. But that's not really the point of this parable. It has something to say about that, but something much more significant is going on. And all of the parables are really telling us something about the kingdom. They're not just moral lessons like Aesop's fables. They do have moral lessons in them. But they're really Jesus delivering the kingdom. The king is here. And he's not just talking about something. He's doing something. His speech accomplishes something. And here he is delivering the kingdom. Both uh, judgment and mercy come with Christ and come with the kingdom. And we see this as it unplays. And in the reality of Jesus being here, the second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who's doing this. There's also this grand drama that's unplaying on the pages of history as well. That right after Adam and Eve has sinned, that the uh, promise was made to them that a seed would come. That a seed would come from them who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But in between times, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are going to be at war with one another. And here we see that war played out. Jesus, the seed of the woman, versus a seed of the serpent, if you will. So there's three things we'd like to look at this morning. First, there's a confrontation with the king. Second, we see a story from the king. And third, we recognize the compassion of the king. So there's a confrontation with the king, a story from the king, and the compassion of the king. Well, first there's this confrontation with Jesus. It says, Behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Did this lawyer stand up because his heart was troubled and because he wanted to learn from Jesus? The text tells us that he wanted to put him to a test. It's interesting in the Gospel of Luke that the only other time that this word test was used when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan was testing him. Satan was tempting him. And if you would just read through Luke, that would sting out to you. Like these are parallel situations. The serpent was trying to test him, and now another one, a son of the serpent, if you will, is trying to test him as well. It's, he's trying to trick him. He's trying to trap him. He doesn't want to learn from Jesus. He doesn't want to love Jesus. He doesn't want to ask a sincere question. He's trying to trip him up. He's trying to trap him. He's acting like the evil one. He's acting like the serpent. He's acting like Satan. This Ivy League lawyer is going to trip up this country hick. He's going to try to show him that he doesn't know what he's talking about or embarrass him in front of the crowd. But isn't it just like our Lord and Savior that he's actually the one who's in control of the kingdom? He's the one who's in control of the situation. He's in the one who's in control of both judgment and salvation. And so Jesus quickly gets the upper hand. He's nobody's pawn. He's nobody's fool. He's in the one who is in control of the kingdom. So he asks him, he asks the lawyer, what is written in the law? Right? This is your area of expertise. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And turn with me, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 6.
all Jews of the day were required to recite this twice a day. So this lawyer would have said this hundreds and hundreds of times in his life. He knows this. He could spew Deuteronomy 6 by memory. He may have even already done it that morning if he was faithful to what he had committed to do. And so he quotes from part of this passage, but note that he doesn't quote the whole passage. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Let's hear the word of God. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might, which is what he quoted. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around, for the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, And destroy you from off the face of the earth. And then don't get this. Don't miss this. Verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to a what, beloved? To a test. And the lawyer standing up to test him. He knew this. This is playing out. This isn't just a a story. He knew this passage and he recited part of the law that he thought he kept. Yeah, I think I've actually loved. We're going to find out he didn't really love the way he thought he did. But it specifically says, don't put the Lord your God to a test. And standing before him is the Lord his God. And he's putting him to the test. The second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, is standing there before him in the flesh. And he thinks that he can test him. And Jesus says, you're correct. He says, do these things and you will live. Remember his question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must do the law perfectly in all of its exacting fulfillment in order to inherit eternal life. That's what you must do. But remember the passage that he read? Hear, O Israel. How does faith come, beloved? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, not by doing He should have heard the goodness of God even in the passage that he's the one who made the vineyards, not you. He's the one who dug the well, not you. He's the one who provided the land, not you. It should have driven all of his attention to believe in and trust and look to the Lord, but he's relying on his own doing, his own works, thinking that that's going to justify him. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you do all of those things, if you do them well, then you will live. And the lawyer starts to realize this is not really going the way that I had hoped. (laughs) He recognizes that he thought he was putting Jesus on trial and Jesus is putting him on trial. 
That's the weight of the law. That's what the law does. What must you do? You must do these things perfectly. The lawyer knows that this is not going well. Now note what the text says. It says he desires to justify himself. <laughs> Let me find a way through this. Let me find a way to make it so that I'm not really the bad guy in this situation. This is a classic lawyer trick, right? No offense to any lawyers in the room. Let me find the loophole. He said, who is my neighbor? Maybe he's figuring if he can narrow it down enough that if it's the people that I like and I love them, that that's good. So he wants to find a loophole and he asks the question, who is my neighbor? He's convicted by Christ's words but he bypasses the weightier matter of loving God perfectly and raises a quibble about the identity of his neighbor. Instead of recognizing, does he really love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? The Lord is standing in front of him and he's testing him. He hasn't loved. And he hasn't loved his neighbor. Dr. Godfrey, in commenting on this passage, said, whatever else the law may be able to do for us, it cannot make us love our neighbors especially if God demands that we count our enemies among them. The law can't make you righteous. The law can't make you good. The law can't make you obey. How many of you have driven by a speed limit sign and maybe gone over the speed limit, right? It doesn't make you obey, does it? You know the law, it's there, and you go by it. It can't make you obey it. Dr. Godfrey says there are few people less loving in Scripture than this lawyer. This lawyer thinks he's loving. He doesn't love the Lord, he doesn't love his neighbor, and he doesn't, certainly doesn't love his enemy, and he's putting the Lord to the test. So this confrontation has really not gone the way that the lawyer thought. So let's do it to our second point. Jesus tells a story. He tells a parable. He tells the story of a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is about a 3,300-foot drop in elevation over a 17-mile course. Rocky country, it's well-suited for robbers, well-suited for thieves. And it says that this man had gotten robbed, left for dead. He's just laying there by the side of the road. And it says a priest and a Levite happened to come by. A priest and a Levite would send off bells and whistles to those who are listening. A priest and a Levite are basically paid clergy. These are professional ministers, if you will. If anybody should have helped one laying there dead by the side of the road, it's these men. They're the ones who are to be shepherds. They're the ones who are to be caregivers. They're the ones who are supposed to do uh, and manifest the love and the mercy of the Lord towards people and outsiders. And so he's using these two to be able to drive home a point. This is not a random story, but it's a judgment on the people who thought that they were insiders, but they weren't believing Jesus. They weren't trusting Jesus. They were looking to their own works and their own righteousness for salvation rather than to the Lord. They think that they are heirs of the kingdom, but they're really outsiders. The priests and the Levite passed by on the other side. They didn't help them. They didn't do anything. Many motives have been suggested for the refusal of this priest and this Levite. Maybe they feared becoming unclean from touching a dying man. Maybe they hesitated to help 
a Samaritan, an outsider, someone different than them. Maybe they were afraid of being robbed themselves. Maybe the person who robbed them or the people who robbed them were still hanging around. However, the text doesn't tell us what the weight of the text does and the story does. The point is really clear that nobody was there to help. And what possible excuse could they have given to justify their refusal to help someone? If the weightiest commandments of the law are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, what possible justification could there be for them to both, a priest and a Levite, to walk by and leave this poor man dying there? The drama remains in the story. What's going to happen to this man? He's laying there, and by chance, two people that you would hope would come by and help him, a priest and a Levite, just pass by on the other side. But everything in the story changes when the Samaritan arrives. And Jesus particularly uses a Samaritan as well because a Samaritan was considered an enemy of the Jews. They had a different Torah, they had a different law, they had a different temple, they had a different worship. They considered them outsiders and unclean. They thought they were the in-group. But notice that the Samaritan had compassion, didn't he? The word, I think, in our text was pity. But it really means compassion, strong feelings of tenderness or care for one another, for somebody that manifests itself in action. And look at all the action words that are given us here in the text for how this Samaritan act, acted. It says he went to him, he bound up his wounds, he poured wine on them, most likely to disinfect them, and oil in order to soothe them. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. He stayed the night with him. He paid for him two denarii, which is lodging and care for about two to four weeks. And he instructed the innkeeper that if he has any other debts, any other bills, any other needs when he comes back, I'll take care of it. I've got this. I'll, I will come back for him and I will take care of him. Please just take care of this man. And he promised to return. Listen to all this lavishness of how this Samaritan is acting towards him. So after telling the story, Jesus is going to ask a question. Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Again, kids, if I asked you that in Sunday school, this would be an easy one. Which of the three? And you know what? The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. This is a revealing hard heart. He can't even mention the name. The one who did mercy, the one who showed mercy, the one who showed compassion, that's how you recognize a disciple. That's how you recognize one who belongs to the Lord. And beloved, don't miss what I'm saying here. and Don't miss what Luke is saying here. It's not saying that if you're loving and if you're merciful, then by doing those things, you will be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's saying you want to know how you can know a disciple of Jesus Christ? They are ones who love and do mercy. The ones who have been so touched by the mercy and the love of the Lord, they are part of the new creation. They go 
and do mercy as well. They show love and compassion to insiders, to outsiders, to those like them, to those different, to those who are close to them, to their neighbors, even to their enemies as part of the new creation. Luke is telling us this is what a disciple looks like. This is how you'll know what one is, not this is how to become a disciple. We become a disciple by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And that is manifested in the fruits of the Spirit as we look more and more like our Lord and Savior Jesus and we show love and we show mercy. When he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus is not drawing him in to define a certain group, just kind of narrowly. Otherwise, he would be able to check a box and think, yeah, I've done that. He would start to justify himself. I've been great to the people who live in my particular neighborhood. I've been great to the people who I work with. But not to the people who voted differently. Or not to the people who have a different color of skin than me. Or not to the people who are in a different socioeconomic class than me. Or not to the people who have a different educational degree than me. Or not to the people who worship differently than me. Or not to the people who are trying to persecute me. Oh, but that's the weighty matter of the law. If you're going to be justified by doing, then you would need to love all of those people perfectly and all of these things. What this lawyer needs is not new information, but he needs a new heart. He doesn't need more data. He doesn't even need more law. The law of Jesus, as he read it to him, or even as he had him recite the own law, showed him he had a need. I haven't done these things. I haven't loved the Lord with all my heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. And I'm putting the Lord to the test. It was meant to be crushing to him. Instead, he's still trying to justify himself. The purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law, is to drive us out of ourselves to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and Jesus is standing right before him. And that leads us to our last point. We want to look at the compassion of the king. Beloved, what is Jesus teaching us in this story? Does Jesus want us to love our neighbors? Of course. Are we supposed to stop every person who's begging and give them money? Are we supposed to stop at every car along the side of the road and help them if they're in need? Every time we see someone in need, should we give extravagantly? Certainly all of those things are worthy of our consideration. But the primary reason of this story is to confront the lawyer with the law so that it reflects back on him implicitly that by works of the law no human being will be justified. That through his doing to inherit eternal life, it is a disaster. He needs something other than his doing. He needs a savior. He needs someone merciful and compassionate and righteous and holy, someone who can be a substitute for him. Dr. Phil Riken, coming on this passage, says, as the scripture says in Galatians 3, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, we can never be saved by keeping the law. Not because there is anything wrong with the law, but because there is something wrong with us. And this was the obvious implication of what Jesus said to the lawyer. 
He was laying down an impossible challenge designed to drive the man outside of himself to the life-giving Savior standing in front of him. The lawyer should have been crumbling under the weight of the law. He should have been despairing of his own good works. He should have been listening to Jesus rather than testing Jesus. He should have been begging for mercy as a sinner rather than seeking to justify himself as a saint. He's standing in conversation with the Lord God in the flesh, and he does not love him, he does not listen to him, he does not worship him. He is one who Jesus has warned over and over, is wise in his own understanding. Beloved, we are indeed called to be lovers and doers of mercy. But that is not how we inherit the kingdom. That is the result and the response, the consequence, the calling, the privilege, the blessing, the responsibility of inheriting the kingdom is that we go like our Lord and Savior and we show love and we show mercy. We inherit the kingdom by faith alone, which is a gift of God's grace alone. Jesus' mercy and compassion for us led him to the cross. As Jesus tells this parable in Luke, he is on his way to Jerusalem right at that moment. He's on the way knowing that he's going to go to the cross. And he's going to go to the cross for people like you and I. Ones who have put God to the test. Ones who have not loved him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ones who haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. Ones who have walked by many people in need. And in his love and in his mercy, he is on the way to the cross to pay the penalty for all of that for us, for those who are his, for those who despair of their own works and look to Christ alone for their salvation. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who is on his way to lay down his life for his neighbor, for his friends, for his enemies for his people. He has come to destroy the works of Satan. He has come to rescue and to heal and to save and to forgive and to renew and redeem. Jesus is actually the one who does the law, isn't he? Jesus pays the penalty for all of our law breaking, but he also perfectly fulfills the law in its exacting detail. Every I dotted, every T crossed, He did all of it. And that obedience, dare I say that love, is credited at our account as if we had obeyed, as if we had loved. And that's remarkable. How could any of us then, after hearing that, go out and think, oh, look at everything I did, or pat ourselves on the back in any way? We live a life of gratitude and thankfulness to God, who has showed mercy to us. So in conclusion, friends, let me ask you, which character in this story are you? Sometimes we think we're the Levite. Sometimes we think we're the priest. Some people even think they're the Good Samaritan. Can I submit to you that you're the poor sap laying by the side of the road? And that you are dead, you're dying, and that there was nobody there to help you. Even the people who were supposed to help you 
walked by. And the law couldn't help you. But a good Samaritan came. One who had mercy and one who had compassion. And one who bound you up and one who took you to himself and one who takes you and comforts you and heals you and provides for you and goes away and says, I'm coming back. And when I return, I will take care of him. You and I are the poor saps laying by the side of the road who couldn't help ourselves and had no one else to help us, but one did. The good Samaritan, the ultimate good Samaritan, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself coming down to take mercy upon us, to love us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to make us new, to give us the kingdom as a gift. Not if you do these things, I'll give you the kingdom, but I'm giving you the kingdom. I forgive you, I love you, I declare you righteous, I have made you mine now and forever. And there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from me. Now, go and love, go and show mercy. That's the life we live. Jesus has visited us in mercy and in love and compassion. And we are his now and always. Amen, brothers and sisters. Amen. Please stand if you are able. And let us sing in response number 300.